and welcome to Adopted Fields with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast about anything and everything adoption related. So we have been a little bit quiet on the podcasting front recently, and that's partly because, as some of you know, we recently wrapped up a series of six online writing workshops for transracial adoptees, which was generously funded by the Overseas Koreans Foundation. Basically, Ryan and I just decided, like, hey, we're a podcast, but let's try doing some writing workshops. So we were very much figuring things out as we went along, and there was a bit more admin involved than we expected. But in the end, we were really happy with how they went. Uh, we also want to thank our six wonderful workshop facilitators and also everyone who attended the workshops. I think it's such a brave thing to sign up for a random workshop and share deeply personal writing with strangers on Zoom. Um, so I just want to acknowledge every single person who turned up and participated. Thank you so much for your heart and vulnerability and for co-creating these spaces with us. So, our final workshop was an autobiographical life writing workshop led by Korean adoptee Miju Kim. Ryan and I were also participating in this workshop, which involved sharing our short pieces of writing with each other. And as I listened to the other participants read their stories, I was like, holy shit, these are amazing and so powerful. Maybe we could somehow like share these stories with everyone on a podcast episode. And so we did. After the workshop, our participants generously agreed to record their stories for us. And so now we have this special compilation episode for you today, featuring six short pieces by transracial adoptees, including Ryan and I, if we may, about our first encounters with food from our birth cultures. All of the pieces start with a short self-introduction, except for one anonymous contributor. But before we hear the pieces, I also had a little chat with Miju, our workshop facilitator, about autobiographical life writing and the value of adoptee-only spaces. So let me tell you a little bit more about Miju. Miju has over 15 years experience working with adult adoptees. She established the Korean Adoptees of Hawaii, or Kahi, organization, which hosted the very first adult adoptee film festival in 2006, which is very cool. And then she was recruited to work for Global Overseas Adoptees Link, known as GOAL, which is South Korea's only adoptee-led NGO. While living in Seoul, Miju also developed programming for Korea's first nationally funded mental health services dedicated to adoptees, which is amazing. She also worked on Goal's First Trip Home program for nine years, facilitating discussion groups and providing emotional support during what can be a very intense experience. Hi, Miju. Hi Hannah. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us today. Um, it's nice to just catch up with you anyway, as, as usual. Um, can you please just briefly introduce yourself? So I know that's a really big question, but um, yeah, please just give us the, <laughs> the basic info on you. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. As you know, my name is Miju. I'm a Korean adoptee. 
I was adopted to Hawaii, which is part of the U.S., and I spent most of my adult life living in Korea while working with Korean adoptees. And I teach writing workshops, and now I also coach adoptees. And that's, that's how we met when you were working with adoptees in Korea back in 2010. Back when Hannah was young and <laughs> new and shiny to the adoptee community. <laughs> yes, and like super green. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Can you tell us a little bit about what life writing or autobiographical life writing is and how you like how you first got into it sure life uh, autobiographical life writing is exactly what it sounds like <laughs> it's writing about your life and i came across a course for it online when i was doing a search for something completely different i can't even remember what it was but i ended up doing this course and after i got certified as a guided autobiography instructor I decided to create a series that was just for adoptees um, that's adoption-focused. And I do this through thematic writing prompts. Can I, like, dig a tiny bit deeper there? So you took the course yourself as a participant, a, a general course, like not, not for specifically for adoptees. Did you have certain moments or experiences taking the course yourself where you were like, I would get more out of this or I would... I don't know, feel more comfortable like with other adoptees or like, I don't know, did you have an experience of like sharing some writing that was kind of about adoption and the, like other people just didn't get it at all or I don't, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but yeah. In this class that I took, you know, because I had lived and worked in Korea for years, I had almost forgotten what it was like to be the only person of color in a space. Mm. And so that was already a bit of a different experience that I hadn't had for like years. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was really differences in their reactions to what I was writing that put me into those moments and spaces where you just feel the distance mm. and you can tell by some of the reactions, how it's impacting them. And so I think it speaks a lot to the value of being in adoptee only spaces. It's also this idea of autobiographical life writing and thinking about our lives as adoptees from that perspective um, and wanting to really create a space for that for us. Hmm. And yeah, just being in that space with like-minded people having that experience. If we come back to the workshop that you facilitated for us, you set a writing prompt around food. And actually, I just want to read it for people because it's a lovely prompt. There are the stories we are given and the stories we tell ourselves. Some stories we believe, not necessarily because they are true. In this workshop, we will focus on story rather than the skill of writing and discuss why writing our stories in our own voices matters. Come having written 250 words on the first time you recall encountering food from the place where you were adopted. So can you just tell us why you decided to use 
food as um, a writing prompt for this this adoptee workshop? First, <laughs> I want to explain that the writing workshops I do aren't focused on writing as a craft. It's more about getting the stories that are in your head written down. So my classes are really inclusive because anyone at any level of writing is welcome to join. That being said, I think that regardless of a person's background, whether they're professional writers or they don't consider themselves writers at all, it can be uncomfortable or intimidating to bring a piece of writing to share with a random group of people. Mm. And so to start, I like to use food prompts because everyone has had a lifelong relationship with food which means that it doesn't really discriminate against anyone since we all have a lot of memories associated with it. Food is also seen as connecting us to our culture. So it's seemingly an easy prompt to start with, but actually mm -hmm. like so many things, it's a bit more complicated than it seems on the surface. It's really interesting, I think, to see how people interpret a prompt Mm. which part of it they gravitate toward and where it takes them. Yes. I think everyone in our group interpreted it like, like took it in slightly different directions, which was wonderful. And um, it, it led to some really interesting places. Hello, I'm Miso Jung. I was born in Songnam-si, South Korea, and was adopted to the U.S. at eight months old. I grew up on lands of the Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples in what's colonially known as Minnesota. And I'm currently living on the traditional lands of the Muncie Lenape, the Canarsie, the Hunkachaug, the Matinecock, the Shinnecock, the Rockaway, and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy in what's colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. When I was a kid, my family did eat Korean food, the stuff that was palatable to Minnesotans like mandu, japchae, bulgogi, and fried rice. Mrs. Han from the Adoption Agency had taught some of the mothers how to cook these recipes. My two oldest sisters would add kimchi to pots of ramen noodles, and sometimes we'd fry seaweed and eat it with rice. But I wouldn't say I really encountered Korean food until I was an adult and started learning about the food culture and cooking traditional meals, rice with soup and side dishes. One of the first things I cooked at that time was sundubu chige. This was the early days of Mang Chi's YouTube channel, before the stew was widely popular in the U.S. I went to Kim's Market in St. Paul to procure the special ingredients, kelp, anchovies, gochukaru, sundubu, the real stuff in the tube with a green label. I cooked it in a black tukpegi and followed all of Mang Chi's instructions. Exactly three shiitake mushrooms, five cloves of garlic, three shrimps, and let it simmer until the white of the egg was barely set. When I tasted that chige, made with my own hands, I was sure it was the most satisfying thing I'd ever eaten. I couldn't stop myself from consuming the whole pot, my stomach stretching beyond its capacity, but my soul insisting I must reclaim with each spoonful something I didn't know until that moment I'd lost. Hi, my name is Cal. I use they, them pronouns. I'm an international transracial adoptee from China. My parents are a cis, het, white couple, and I was raised on the Siletz, Multnomah, and Clackamas tribal lands, which are also known as Portland, Oregon. One of my favorite childhood memories of eating the food of my country of origin was when my family went every few years to a restaurant 
that sadly had to close due to COVID last year. We would go with a group of other adoptive families and their children from China, whom my parents had met through the adoption agency. We went for their dim sum. Sometimes we missed the timing and ended up just ordering regular dishes, but the dim sum was the treasure we were after. There was always a line, and as we waited in the tiled entryway, anticipating the food, catching up, us kids would goof around, or, as we got older, we would gossip or ignore each other. There was a wall of tanks with different sea creatures, from fish to lobsters, but it was too far away from the entrance to say hello. Once it was our turn, we all followed the server out of the tiled entry, onto the rich red carpet, and to our table. For a while, the adults would catch up, while I usually poured some tea into the little white cups and waited to drink it. Then the carts would come. One by one, they swung by, the ladies lifting lids to reveal neatly pleated dumplings, steamed buns, and rice cakes. They would cut portions of noodles, fried dumpling puffs, their scissors slicing swiftly. And if you missed a dish you wanted, there was no guarantee there would be more of it next time the carts came around. At the time, I remember feeling the childish discomfort that comes with being seen with parents, with the added layer of consciousness about how our group would be viewed. I had no language to communicate as we didn't talk about stuff like that, being transracially adopted. I remember feeling out of place, processing all these contradictions of adoption in my little head, which would lessen when the food arrived. When I look back, it is with a little sadness and a lot of love for the now-closed restaurant. The cafeteria kimchi was the stuff of nightmares. Served in dented metal pans by tired-looking ajumas, it was limp and pale and chopped into crooked little pieces, nothing like the vibrant, fiery red and green heads of sleek, plump cabbage proudly touted as one of Korea's national foods in tourism ads and travel books. The kimchi was a disappointingly consistent accent to every consistently disappointing meal in the cafeteria. Sometimes dinner at least had a fully rounded roster of greasy meat, a vaguely green vegetable, and canned fruit cocktail. Other days, it was literally white rice and lukewarm french fries. And the kimchi, of course. To look like a good sport among the 80 other shiny new college graduates in my program, although most of them came from dazzlingly prestigious universities, not no-name liberal arts colleges like mine, I always took a few pieces of kimchi at every meal, even breakfast then tried to bury it among the other sad scraps of my meal as I dumped it in the food garbage. Did you know they always separate out the food waste in Korea? Wasn't I supposed to be Korean? Was I a bad Korean if I didn't like the kimchi? I thought about my friend, my white, progressive, foodie friend who was so excited to try kimchi because probiotics and the way she reacted to the kimchi at a restaurant in DC. Ugh, it tastes the way garbage smells. Hi, my name is Sharissa and I am an adoptee born in Cambodia and brought to Canada as an infant where I currently still live. 
I am in my mid-20s and have not been back to my birth country or sought out my birth family as of yet. However, I am becoming more and more interested in learning about my culture and food is just one part of that never-ending journey. I remember eating Cambodian food for the first time in my early 20s. My white friend was driving me back from where we had just spent Christmas and had told me she always loved stopping in this town at this little restaurant. The moment I walked in, I felt very small but very seen at the same time. There were paintings of the Angkor Wat temple and other Cambodian landmarks, but also more modest photos of whom I came to realize were the owners of the restaurant. I rarely meet other Cambodian folks and this was my first time trying their food. A delicious soup, by the way. The broth was rich and spicy, with chunks of meat splashing into it as I tried to eat as politely and efficiently as I could. Although, I barely remember the experience of eating it because all I could do was try and take in every detail of the decor and sneak sheepish looks at the owners as I tried to spot any resemblance in our faces, only to look quickly back at my soup, my appetite fading. I was both a fraud and a long-lost cousin to this soup, while my white friend seemed right at home. Now I cook food for a living, but I'm scared to cook a Khmer recipe because how will I know if I've done it right when no one has ever been there to teach me and by now I've even forgotten the taste of that first soup. My name is Hannah and as you know I co-host this podcast with Ryan. I was born in Jeonju, Korea and adopted to a small town in Tasmania, Australia and I currently reside in Seoul, Korea. I was three and a half when I was adopted. Old enough to speak Korean, old enough to know my relatives by their names, and old enough to eat almost everything. But you didn't like kimchi, my Australian parents would tell me, as they had been told by the adoption agency. Even as a child, this struck me as odd. Why did it matter if I didn't like kimchi when we barely knew what it was or where to get it? I didn't encounter Korean food again until I returned to Korea in 2010, before kimchi became a superfood, before Squid Game and BTS and all the other things that have made my previously largely invisible culture trendy. When I finally tried kimchi, I was expecting to either love it or hate it, but my initial reaction was indifference. It would take me years to appreciate the unique combination of salty, sour, sweet, spicy, and funky notes in each recipe before I'd start to fry it in the rendered fat of samgyeopsal pork and wrap it around mouthfuls of white rice. And longer still before I'd try mugenjijeon, my favorite savory pancake made from washed, aged kimchi. And it would take over a decade before I could accept kimchi from my Korean mother. Or, in other words, before the pit of indifference, hiding anger, hiding deep grief, would soften enough so that I could take a genuine step towards her. I'm Ryan and I was born in Masan, Korea and adopted to Australia. I spent a fair bit of my life in Taiwan and Korea growing up uh, and I currently live in Nam, otherwise known as Melbourne, uh, on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. 
I would have been around 14, Y2K having passed relatively uneventfully. The world continued to spin, which meant my parents' plans continued unabated, which meant in the winter of 2000, I found myself in a hotel in Myeongdong, looking over the city lights, wondering why I felt empty and depleted. Bulgogi was probably the first Korean food I ate with my family during our first few days. Perhaps it was the food most familiar to my parents. We would later talk about how different Korean food was to what we were used to in Taipei, the seasoning and the type of spiciness, the way food is assembled and served, all the side dishes, the seemingly impractical heaviness of the chopsticks. I don't recall encountering Korean food at all prior to moving. I love Taiwanese food, especially street food. I tried some Japanese food as well, but the flavor of Korean food was different, and perhaps it was a gravity to tasting and eating it as a Korean adoptee in Korea that subconsciously rendered my experience of it more complicated. I didn't know how to enjoy it. I think I ate because I had to eat something. Later, when I was old enough to venture out to Shincheon and Hongdae without my folks, I learned to love tteokbokki, bibimbap, galbi, kimbap. I guess I started to allow myself to develop a taste for it. And now food is one of the things I miss about living there. I know we kind of touched on this before. Can you just expand on it a little bit more for us? Like in your opinion, what is the value of creating adoptee-only spaces like this? Because I know, you know, in your in your life, um, like even from forming the Kahi group of adoptees like in Hawaii before you moved to Korea. I know that you've been creating these um, adoptee-specific spaces for a long time um, in in different forms. So when I think about adoptee-only spaces, I think there's a level of safety created within them that allows us to be seen and heard by peers. Hmm. And what I mean by peers um, I'm talking about people whose lives were also disrupted by adoption. As an adoptee, being in adoptee-only spaces, I think it gives us courage. I think we give ourselves permission to be a little bit more vulnerable because we're seen in a way we don't think we are or maybe can't be in other spaces. Mm. Um, adoptee-only spaces are deliberate spaces that we choose to be in that center our experiences as an individual and as a collective we created it we have carved out this space for ourselves i think it's knowing that we're not alone Mm. actually i'm kind of curious like did you have certain early experiences yourself of powerful adoptee only spaces like that that kind of inspired you to create them in the future I think adoptee-only spaces, the existence of them and then the ability to be part of them were hugely powerful experiences that I didn't get to have until I was an adult. Mm -hmm. So I know, for example, some adoptees have experiences going to camps or to groups with other adoptive families or other adoptees growing up. I did not have that. Um, And so when I discovered them, it was, you know, almost that feeling, I think, of going from seeing life in black and white to seeing life in color. It just changed so many things. Like my entire Mm -hmm. lens just changed. Being in that space, the feelings that I had, the thoughts I could have, um, 
again, it's that idea, I think, of being seen and being heard, that idea of not having to explain some things um, because it's just known. You know, when someone asks you where you're from, you know that they're not asking you the way that everybody else has been asking you in your life. It's they already know you're adopted. (laughs) So they just want to know, like, what country you're from, what state you're from, what city you're from. Um, And they're not questioning really your origins. Um, So I think that was that was a big part of it. And then being in a position which anybody could do, I really encourage anybody to go out and do this is to having that ability to create those spaces, you know, having that vision to, to seek it out and then to create it. I think those are really amazing things. And I really commend people who are, who are doing that for themselves and for the community, people like, like you and Ryan, even on this podcast, that's, it's amazing. The kind of work people are doing, I think. What's your favorite thing about working with other adoptees? Just one. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite thing is probably connecting with people, hearing their stories, and sometimes having the privilege to be an intimate part of their lives for just a moment or maybe longer. And I guess, like, working on First Trip Home for so many years, the um, goals first trip home program you bore witness to like a very intimate part um of of people's lives yeah I met a lot of people through that program and through other programs that were run by goal and so it is just a huge huge privilege huge privilege finally Miju um if people want to work with you or like take some of your workshops um, how can they contact you or find out more about them if people are interested, um, they can contact me um, by email is the best right now at kim.meju at gmail.com. That's K-I-M dot M-E-E-J-O-O at gmail.com. Oh, thanks, Miju. <laughs> it's so weird to be like having this like semi-formal kind of chat with you like um no you're so good though you're so professional (laughs) that's really good stay tuned for episodes featuring some of the other writers who ran workshops for us including jenny hajin wills thanks again to the overseas koreans foundation for making this series of writing workshops possible Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast, or we're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. 